Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Some hopeful news about COVID safety this Halloween. We've learned how to wear masks. We've learned how to space ourselves apart. The vaccines are making a big impact. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego joins a Caltrans effort to help homeless people camped along freeways. We have a large population that are unsheltered, and they're taking refuge in not only these areas under highways, but all throughout the city. The importance of having uncomfortable conversations about race. And Palm Springs reveals its dark side with a film noir festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. On Monday, school districts around San Diego reported slightly higher absentee numbers as some parents kept their children home to protest vaccine mandates. But while small groups demonstrate against the mandates, other parents are counting the days until a vaccine for kids under 12 is approved. Health officials say that emergency use approval is probably coming in the next few weeks, but not in time for Halloween. So what should parents have at top of mind as we enter another year of holidays in the midst of a pandemic? Joining me is Dr. Mark Sawyer, pediatric infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer, welcome back. It's great to join you, Maureen. Now, we see the number of new COVID cases going down as more vaccine mandates go into effect. Do you see a cause and effect there? Oh, I do think there is some cause and effect. The mandates have have really been working and more and more people are getting immunized. We're reaching a level where there aren't that many susceptible people still around. So, you know, we're, I, I hesitate to use the word herd immunity, but we're really making a lot of progress. How are mandates working at Radies? Uh, all the health workers at Rady need to be uh, immunized. And if for some reason they won't get immunized, then we they're being placed into non-patient care type of jobs uh, during the pandemic. Now, currently vaccines are available for kids 12 years and older, but what is the latest on vaccine approval for children under 12? Yeah, I think that's coming right up. The FDA is meeting on the 26th of October to review the data from Pfizer about 
that, uh, immunizations in that younger age group. And from what I've heard about that data and having seen the FDA in action during this COVID outbreak, I expect pretty rapid approval of an emergency youth authorization or EUA for the 5 through 11th. Will this be a different form of the vaccine? It's the same format or the same construct, but it's a, a lower dose. So the dose that was used in the 5 to 11 was one third the dose that older uh, adolescents and adults were getting. And will kids need two shots? Yes, it's a two dose regimen, just like it is in, in adults. What's the plan on how the shots will be given to children? Will we see large vaccination sites open up again? I think there may be some, but I were since we started the pandemic, we have many more immunizers in San Diego than we had, you know, back in January and February. Pharmacies are one place where school children may be able to get immunized, and of course, at their primary care physician's office. The pediatricians and family physicians of San Diego have been gearing up and getting ready so that they can give vaccines in, in just in their office. And what kinds of reactions may kids get from the shot? Well, we haven't seen the full data yet for the younger set, but what's been released so far suggests they get the same sort of side effects as older adolescents and adults. So sore arms, redness where the injection was given, you might not feel good for 24 hours, but then you're back to normal. Should perhaps kids plan staying uh, home from school the day after they get a vaccination? Well, it's really hard for me to predict. Kids are pretty resilient and it takes a lot to throw them off. So they may well be able to just continue and go to school like normal. So right now, of course, a kid's vaccine is not yet approved. We're hoping for that in the next few weeks. And of course, Halloween is coming up. So would you let your kids or grandkids go trick-or-treating this year? I think that's a pretty safe activity. It's outdoors, of course, and it doesn't require prolonged close contact with other people. Now, having said that, uh, I'm referring to a couple of kids, siblings, for example, going around their neighborhood, not batches of 20 kids gathering together in a herd. Should kids wear COVID masks, like sort of under their masks or over their Halloween masks? Yeah, hopefully they already have masks on as part of their costume. But I think in an outdoor setting like that, uh, if there are not a lot of other kids in, the, in, in their group, that they probably can not wear a mask. Dr. Anthony Fauci recently had some encouraging words for families in regards to celebrating Halloween this year, but did have these words of caution for those who are not vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, again, think about it, that you'll add an extra degree of protection to yourself and your children and your family and your community. So for the younger kids who cannot be vaccinated at this time, what extra degree of protection can they add? Well, we do know that masks work. So in indoor settings, particularly around people that you don't know their immunization status, masks can still be, should still be used. Good ventilation helps even in an indoor setting. Distancing from other people, all the things that we've been doing for the last year and a half that also work to reduce the risk. You know, even with a vaccine for kids five and over, those very young children will still be unvaccinated. How should people with infants and toddlers plan for this holiday season? Well, the same precautions apply, trying to keep away from large groups of people, uh, unless you're outdoors, uh, 
good hand washing. You know, I wouldn't pass the, the newborn baby around for every family member to hold them because uh, the more spacing you have, the better off you are. Now, vaccine is being studied all the way down to six months of age. So in the next six months or so, we may be starting to immunize even younger kids. There's been an enormous amount of misinformation spread about the COVID vaccine. And I can only imagine that that's going to ramp up again when young children can be vaccinated. Is there any way to counteract that? Well, you know, health officials and public health officials are trying as much as they can to get out accurate information. I would encourage people who have concerns about the vaccine to talk to their physician. That's their best source of unbiased and unfiltered information. Uh, And, you know, there are certainly lots of good sites on the internet to gather information, but there's lots of misinformation there too. So I would not rely on the internet to, to educate yourself about the risks and the benefits of vaccine. Talk to your doctor or your children's doctor. I've talked to you several times, many times during the pandemic, and you sound very hopeful at this point. Is that the way you feel, Dr. Sawyer? Yes, I think we're getting over the worst of this. You know, we had a peak just in the last month or two, we think largely due to the Delta variant. And there may be other variants that come in in the next year. But we've learned how to wear masks. We've learned how to space ourselves apart. The vaccines are making a big impact. So I think we'll continue to have little peaks of activity at various times, but I don't expect a a massive outbreak the way we've been having in the last year. I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Sawyer with Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. The most concentrated pockets of San Diego's growing homeless population can be found closer to downtown, along the city's crowded neighborhood streets. The full scope of the issue, however, extends far beyond the city's urban core. A recent initiative put forth by the governor, the city of San Diego, and the State Department of Transportation aims to help homeless individuals camped along the area's highways. The outreach program is a clear indication of just how widespread the issue of homelessness has become across the state. Joining me to discuss the effort is Hafsa Keika, head of the San Diego's Homelessness Strategies and Solutions Department. Hafsa, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Pleasure is mine. So let's begin with where this program is aimed. Why are unsheltered people taking refuge along state highways and freeways? We know that persons experiencing homelessness, we have a large population that are unsheltered and they're taking refuge in not only these areas under highways, but all throughout the city. We know that this particular initiative really targets the safety issue and the public health issue. And what's really exciting about this particular initiative is that it's the first of its kind with this new department that Mayor Goria has set and has empowered. So with the governor's initiatives and funding coming down the pipeline, we find this to be a great initiative in partnership with Caltrans, where we could really collectively create an impact to address the unsheltered population in these highway areas. So what's different about this program that hasn't already been done with regards to the city's previous efforts to alleviate homelessness? Well, there's a couple of things. 
First and foremost, we are leading from a people-centered, compassionate approach. This is very important, and this is a priority that Mayor Gloria has made it in this administration. And quite frankly, this is the reason why I am here and honored to be part of this new team here in the city of San Diego. We are leading from a place of compassion and people-centered approach. And that means that we're putting outreach at the forefront. And not just any outreach, but people-centered outreach from an agency that has been doing the work throughout Southern California. We are also utilizing the capacity needed. We know very well that there is not enough providers within the city. And so by bringing CityNet to have this initiative with Caltrans in partnership with the city is really setting up a program to expand the service base. And then lastly, we know, as I mentioned earlier, that Governor Newsom with the California Comeback Plan has allocated several funding and resources and we know that with this partnership, we could elevate the work with the current funding and go ahead and create regional partnerships and strengthen our expansion to address homeless services. Exactly what kind of outreach or resources would this program offer? So CityNet will offer resources, first and foremost, engagement and establishing rapport with persons experiencing homelessness. It's that people-centered approach. We know that CityNet does have social workers on site that could really make that connection with the person to help them receive the services. Some of the services could be obviously shelter, making sure that Housing First is at the forefront of this initiative, offering supportive services, connections to the mental health system, to the medical health system, even substance abuse programs and services, offering specific family reunification if persons need to be connected back to their family. And then of course, transportation to and from to shelter. And then also additional services that are really necessary to help persons get into the path of self-sufficiency, such as offering a case management for employment services and for getting connected to essential documents like your DMV or your ID, really helping to empower people to get on the path of self-sufficiency and be housed. What are some of the unique dangers and risks to people living in freeway encampments? I think if just by optics, you can see, you know, it's uh, it's an area where there's high traffic, cars are going and speeding by. We want to make sure that with our partnership with Caltrans, that persons experiencing homelessness have access to necessary resources, including food, health. And as you know, one of the things most recently in the past, there was hepatitis A. There is also COVID. That was a public health crisis. And most recently, there's the Shigella outbreak. And so it's really important that persons experiencing homelessness have access to health care and essential resources. And some of the persons experiencing homelessness may even have declining health, um, which may not be very optical in front of the highways. But when we're actually creating outreach to go down and deep into those areas, we're able to engage with those persons. What are some of the challenges in providing outreach to those living in freeway encampments as opposed to those in more urban areas? There could be encampments that are hidden. There could be encampments that are between shrubs. There could be encampments that are under overpasses. And you have to be very strategic at what times you're able to go ahead and do the outreach and, and obviously the cleanup. The dangers are there. You know, it's the speeding and, and the highways. And so it's really important to be able to have a geographic coordinated effort. So CityNet and Caltrans will be working together on a schedule of services and in tandem so that there's that outreach at the first and foremost foremost, and then the cleanup. 
Will other groups previously involved in addressing the city's unsheltered issue take part in this program? Absolutely. We are expanding our system of care. And so CityNet being an outreach provider will be going out and doing the outreach services with all of the supportive services I mentioned earlier, but really be connecting back to our local system of care with the San Diego Housing Commission, our Homelessness Response Center, and of course, working with partners like Father Joe's, Alpha, and PATH as well in helping persons accept shelter and additional resources towards the path of permanent housing. And, you know, some people might not assume that a state's transportation department would take part in efforts to help areas of homelessness. How exactly will Caltrans be involved in this effort? Well, we're really excited that Caltrans is at the table in working to identify specific areas where we find these encampments that might be a potential unsafe areas. Also, making sure that the cleanup in this and this in the storage is provided. So, it's really important that we work together with Caltrans to help with the cleanup afterwards. As you know, these encampments, obviously, these are people's homes, and we recognize that they're homes, but we want to make sure that we offer them safe homes and homes that can help them get into permanent housing that is more stable. Caltrans recently changed its policy of clearing only high-priority encampments during the pandemic. Can you explain what makes an encampment high-priority, and do we see a lot of these along our freeways? High-priority encampments are those that could be danger to a person who is out there or to just the general community. I'm not necessarily aware of the detailed nuances, but there could be electrical wires. There could be places that you could fall into a ditch. There could even be potential fires if it's it's if it's, if it's for warming that could create um, additional cycles. So it's really important that these um, areas are looked at, that they're not, that we don't remain complacent about it, that we're being proactive. And Mira Gloria, along with this partnership with the California Comeback Plan with Governor Newsom, we're making sure we're strategically allocating our resources to be able to not only address homelessness, but ensure that the highways are safe. I've been speaking with Hafsa Keika, head of San Diego's Homelessness Strategies and Solutions Department. Hafsa, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Last year, Governor Gavin Newsom sent nearly $850 million to cities and counties to buy empty motels and other properties to convert them into housing for those who are unsheltered. Well, now he wants to spend over $2.5 billion more on the same effort. It's an initiative called HomeKey. Those converted properties are filling a critical gap for the unhoused. They're providing more stability than a traditional shelter, but most aren't permanent places to stay just yet. California Report host Saul Gonzalez teamed up with KCRW reporter Anna Scott to bring you a profile of a resident at the Willow Tree Inn HomeKey site in Compton. When you walk into the willow tree, it still looks a lot like a motel with a check-in desk and everything. Hi, Omar. Here we meet up with Omar Molina. He's 55 years old, and he moved into this room in May. It's like an all-in-one. It's my, I have my bed here. I have a microwave. I have a flat-screen TV. With and Omar's proud of his place, though he doesn't like the dark gray color of one wall near his bed. I wish I could paint the walls, one of the walls, but it's okay. I'm grateful. He can't paint the walls because he's only staying here temporarily. Like most home key sites in L.A., this motel isn't serving as permanent housing, at least not yet. That's because it doesn't meet all the codes and requirements for long-term housing. For example, it needs to be made more accessible to people with disabilities. 
So the county opened the building as temporary housing for now until those renovations can be done. But still, Omar says he feels a lot more stable here than he did in a shelter he stayed at in the past. There's always distractions here. It's more, it's quieter. It's more, I'm more at peace. I can relax. I can take a deep breath and I can exhale. And I can say, oof, that was trying or, or something like that. And it still has the, like, so we have security here and keeps me safe. Immediately before coming here, Omar stayed in a tent on a parking lot in the San Fernando Valley. It was scary. It was scary. I felt lost. I felt confused. I, I embarrassed. And there was embarrassment and, and there were fears, a lot of fears. Most of the referrals have actually been people who are, have been on the streets. They're coming right from the streets. That's John Masseri, the head of the nonprofit The People Concern, which operates this motel. You know, people are much more likely to want to come indoors if they have a space where they can, you know, close the door. They have their own bathroom. They have their own sleeping area. You know, people who lived on the streets want the same thing that all of us want. And they want privacy. They want dignity. They want some sense of control over their life. In the meantime, though, Omar is searching for a permanent apartment elsewhere. Recently, he turned one down in Van Nuys. He felt that the location was just too isolated. He says he sees where he is now in Homekey as a huge opportunity that he's grateful for. He doesn't want to blow it by moving on too soon or going someplace that's not a healthy fit for him. Well, for me, being here, it means a a place of starting over, getting another chance, getting to fix myself, if you will, or heal myself, you know, it's given me a place to to regroup, to rebuild my foundation, and to just basically help myself be able to help somebody else eventually. That's my goal. The state recently started taking applications for a second round of home key funding, and Los Angeles City and County, along with many other local governments in California, are expected to acquire more properties using those funds. That was California Report host Saul Gonzalez reporting with KCRW's Anna Scott. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, Then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Oftentimes, it is perception that stands in the way of allyship and progress when fighting racism. 
For example, a survey done by Lean In and SurveyMonkey reveals that while more than 80% of white employees view themselves as allies in the workplace to women of color, just 45% of black women and 55% of Latinas say they have strong allies in the workplace. Well, now there's a book to help bridge the gap between perception and reality to reach understanding. Host of the podcast, Dear White Women, and authors of the new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Race, Sarah Blanchard and Misasha Suzuki Graham join us now. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us on the show. So my first question is, what inspired you all to write this book? Sarah, I'll start with you. A lot of this work, you know, when you watch sort of that quote that you said, you know, 80% of, of white people think that they are allies. Yet, I think so many people think that they are doing certain things. And then, and yet when you watch your actions, you're not actually seeing that come to life in, in the real world. And I think part of the work, this feels like a natural progression of the podcast and the conversations that we've had for the last two and a half years on the show. And like I said, it really comes from a personal place. Um, and this is where I'd love for me, Sasha, to share that why, because we've been friends for for 25 years. I think to Sarah's point, we... Um you know, we know what conversations have been happening in the circles that we move in, and we know what conversations often don't happen. And when Sarah's talking about my personal why, um, you know, I have Black, Asian, and white sons, and it is very hard to be raising these boys and, and know that one of my biggest fears for them is that they walk out of our house one day and don't come back simply based on the color of their skin. Um, but at the same time, we know that that's not a fear that every parent has. But what if we could change those conversations and really talk to people on a very personal level um, and use personal narrative and use education and history and transform what might be good ideas and intentions into practical actions um, in your everyday spheres of life and influence as, to be, as how to be more anti-racist? And Sarah, I'll start with you on this one. Why was it so important for the audience of this book to be white women? I think, first of all, women in general have so much power that often we don't even realize, right? Society is not necessarily geared to, to remind us of the influence that we have, whether it's in the workplace or in the home or at the PTA or in your book clubs or in your social circles. There's so much that we do out there in the world to create community. And so I think the, the biggest thing was reaching out to women. And the reason we reached out to white women in particular was because there is also that privilege that we were talking about, that, that almost sense of that they're not part of the conversations about race and racism. So we really wanted to, to welcome people in a heart-led way to these conversations and really reach out as almost like a love letter. Like we're, these are our, the people we want to reach out to and engage in these conversations because we want more white women involved because of the spheres of influence that we all have. Misasha, what do you think are, are, are the biggest challenges to having these conversations about race and really reaching a place of understanding? That's a great question. I think a lot of times, if you think about what is your earliest memory of talking about race, right? It, it was that you were shushed or you were told we don't talk about these things. And I think we as a society and, and in America have 
largely not talked about race. So there is a natural discomfort in starting to talk about something that you didn't talk about, um, that especially if you're privileged enough to not have to talk about it, um, that you didn't necessarily learn about in school. And then a lot of times defensiveness comes up, right? Because now people, um, and we've heard this a lot from white people, feel that since they haven't been part of the conversation um, in the past, now it's it's being directed at them. And what is so important is that this conversation is necessary for all of us to have so that we can all do better. Sarah, from your perspective? Again, part of this is that our education system has not consistently taught the history of our country and people's experiences and really you know, evenly throughout the country. I think we've we've read statistics that show in certain southern states, for example, slavery is mentioned three times in the in the curriculum in the textbooks, whereas in Massachusetts it's mentioned over a hundred times. And when you grow up in a country with that wide difference in terms of education and exposure, sometimes it's not your fault for not knowing this information. And I think the more grace we can give people, the more we are going to be willing to move forward, be willing to make mistakes and continue to learn and grow and and sort of be messy humans together with the best intentions of leaning into our communities. And in, in the book, you all take this conversation to the workplace. So, Ms. Sasha, I'll ask you first, what are some of the commonplace acts of racism that crop up in the workplace? There's so many, you know, that I, that I think about. I think about how people talk over other people, um, how people take different ideas um, from other people. I think about who is included in committees, right? Who is, who are, who is on your board? Who are the decision makers? And a lot of times that decision-making team on different levels can be very white. Um, and when you're not having different voices in those rooms, you're not going to be making changes. You know, I, I think that a lot of times what comes out as allyship is actually performative allyship in a lot of ways. One thing is said, in different groups where you have a diverse group of people. And another thing is said behind closed doors where that group is significantly less diverse. And so all of those conversations stop people from being able to bring their whole selves to work, really. You you know that if you show up in a certain way, you're not going to be treated the same. And so the book really attempts to break down a lot of those, um, the reasons why and explain why people not, might not be showing up like themselves for work, you know, whether they're being differentiated because of hairstyle or the way they speak or their educational background and helps sort of level set that, that playing field so that we can build up a more equitable workplace from that. Uh, Sarah, what do you hope people walk away with after reading this book? I, I really hope people walk away with a little more hope that they can be engaged in this conversation and affect change in their world. I mean, it, it can be something as small as shifting the dinner table conversation or, you know, whenever you're driving your children around, the types of conversations that you have based on what you hear them saying in the, in the backseat, um, all the way to really looking outwards at the various groups that we're part of, you know, changing the narrative in people's churches or in people's, you know, home, religious homes, wherever that is, or their workplace. You know, I think it doesn't have to be so scary. And I hope people can come away with this with sort of a a fundamental understanding of why we are where we are and that they can do something about it. 
I've been speaking with hosts of the podcast, Dear White Women, and authors of the new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Race, Sarah Blanchard and Misasha Suzuki Graham. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank, Thank you for you having so us. Thank you so much. <laughs> The tourism industry thrives on welcoming everyone who visits San Diego. Now the San Diego Tourism Authority is also trying to welcome more diverse businesses into the fold. A new program will select businesses owned by people of color, LGBTQ, women, and veterans to receive a package of tourism-related mentoring and advertising. The package also includes membership in the Bureau. Tourism Bureau officials say this pilot program is aimed at opening up the industry to more diversity and equity. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Lori Weisberg. Lori, welcome. Thanks for having me. What prompted this move by the Tourism Authority? Um, you know, I, was, I, I asked the current head of the, the Tourism Authority, Julie Coker, she said that um, she felt like she's looking back at this, you know, this last year of racial reckoning that, that you know, began with the, uh, the killing of George Floyd. And as we're coming out of a very difficult period for our economy, for tourism, she felt that it was it was time to give more access to minority-owned businesses, um, ones that don't normally have access, that to, to be able to promote and market themselves, which can be very expensive. Is there a lack of diversity in our tourism industry? I don't think that the tourism leaders themselves will come out and say that. But but I think there I think there is historically I think you know especially you know the large hotels and many of them owned by large companies um, with a history of being more white male dominated I think I think that's true I think you're seeing in um, the restaurant industry um, increasing diversification but um, I, I have a I have a tendency to think that that yes there there is been a lack of diversity and you see that also on. Um, maybe not as recently, but on some of the boards of some of these organizations, um, especially like the hotel lodging industry, I think there is to a degree a recognition that there is some lack of diversity. Now, the businesses selected for this program must be owned by either women or minority groups. But what kinds of businesses are they? Okay, so um, they can be restaurants they can be retail, they can be shops, which you don't necessarily think of as you know, tourism or hospitality, um, activities and attractions, museums, um, meeting and event services. A lot of those kinds of companies had a really tough time um, during the pandemic and some even went out of business. What will they receive if they're selected? So um, they, they, they say that the value of this for each package is about $10,000. So First off, they get free membership in the Tourism Authority. And I checked for, for businesses of the kind of size we're talking about um, that will probably qualify for this. It, the membership's about $550 a year. Um, they'll get some, uh, they'll get a $500 voucher for a course through UC San Diego Extension. They'll get a $1,000 credit to use on the Tourism Authority's digital advertising platform, which is widely seen. And they'll get two free quarter page ads in the San Diego Business Journal and the San Diego Magazine, which you can't necessarily calculate the financial value of. And I think will be especially helpful is that they're, they're going to get coaching from a mentor who has who already is a very successful operator, owner of a tourism or hospitality business. And I, I think that will be invaluable. And um, Bank of America 
is one of the co-sponsors and they're going to be providing some financial coaching. SDG is also a sponsor and then Procopio for law firm is going to provide some free legal training. So I think those are the real perks of this, uh, this program. Lori, how is San Diego's tourism industry? How is it doing now? So the tourism industry, by comparison to the early days of the pandemic, is doing great. But of course, uh, when you compare it to before the pandemic, when tourism was breaking records, it's it's nowhere near there. So we took a look at the Tourism Authority, pulled some records for me, and they, they looked at between January and July of this year. Um, overall visitation had really grown rapidly to 13 million um, visitors, which is a 50% increase over the same period in 2020. But of course, that's when the pandemic was. However, that falls still far short of 2019, when during that same period, it was 20.9. So that's about 8 million visitors day and night, day, day and overnight, 8 million fewer visitors. So you can see we still have a long way to go. And, and we're hearing both nationally and locally that the, the full return probably won't be till 2023, maybe 2024, but it, it's ramping up. It's, it's the business, it's the business and international tourism that's really suffering. Leisure, leisure travel's doing very well, actually. Now, this special program by the San Diego Tourism Authority, it's just starting out as a pilot program. How many businesses will be selected this time around? So there'll be 10 businesses, and and that probably doesn't sound like a whole lot, but I think they're already getting um, a lot of interest, and they're they're already, before they've even launched it, um, are already trying to raise some money to um, finance the the next round, to to grow it. Um, And they're they're not actually having to put out hard dollars, the tourism authority itself, because they're, they're relying on the sponsorships and then some of the perks that are being offered, they do it through kind of industry trade so that they, um, they don't have to pay for it. So, um, but they're going to have to, you know, find some more sponsorships and, and raise more money to, to expand it. But I think they have every intention of not ending this pilot program. And the deadline for applying is coming up, isn't it? That's right. It's very soon. It's November 5th is the deadline to apply. And then those, you know, they'll learn pretty quickly. If they got selected, they'll know by November 15th uh, which ones will be participating. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Lori Weisberg. Lori, thank you so much. And thank you. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. With Palm Springs as close a drive as Los Angeles, KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando wanted to highlight the Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival happening this week. Beth is a fan of noir, and her Cinema Junkie podcast will focus on film noir all next month. She previews the festival with its host and producer, Alan K. Rohde. Alan, for people who are not familiar with the Arthur Lyons 
Noir Festival. Explain a little bit about what this is. This festival, we're now in our 21st year, and this festival was started by Arthur Lyons. Arthur was a mystery writer. He was a Palm Springs City Councilman and was my good friend. And he started this back in uh, 2001-2000 with a single screening inviting Tony Curtis. Then it moved over to the Camelot Theaters, and it started it, with with uh, film noir movies from the mostly from the 1940s and the 1950s, and guests and so on and so forth. And I got involved in it uh, as a friend of art, uh, helping to program movies, interview guests, get guests, and so forth. And Sadly, Art passed away in 2008. I do the promotion, the program, the guests, the films, and everything. We are able to show 35-millimeter films in its original format uh, with a reel-to-reel changeover system, et cetera, as well as digital and and, uh, just about anything else. And uh, what other place you can go to see a film noir where you can go upstairs to the bar, take a cocktail, go down in an elevator and sit in the theater and watch Bogey and Bacall. So it doesn't get any better than that. I'm a huge fan of noir and so are you. You're a champion of it. But for people who may not be familiar with it, why do you feel it's important to showcase these films on a big screen at a festival? Well, uh, I think first off, when you're showing these films, on a big screen at a festival or in a venue, you're not only introducing the some members of the audience or renewing their acquaintance with these films from the 1940s and 50s, you're also renewing the experience. Uh, the other part of this is why these movies are still relevant, important, entertaining, etc. I think that it does introduce people to the way things were from a historical sense. But the plots of these films, I mean, our lives must have changed a lot with 21st century devices and Zoom and cell phones and email and all of this. But the basic human being uh, of greed, lust, larceny, uh, and particularly with noir, when you have people in situations who are doing something that they know is fundamentally wrong, and they do it anyway. (laughs) So I think uh, people identify with that. They identify with a good story, and they appreciate that. And I think film noir is still and will always be relevant because it's it's stories about people and what they do, uh, or in many cases, what they shouldn't do. Well, and I think noir, unlike a lot of other genres or, or film styles, remains very contemporary because it's willing to look at kind of the darker side of human nature and to address things that were taboo and difficult back in the 40s and also remain ideas and themes that are relevant to people today. Yeah, and I think it also identifies characters that may not live within the letter of the law but they have their own personal code, their own personal standards, which I think we all do. So I think when people see these stories, and I think, Beth, you're exactly right, they often identify with the characters and the decisions that they may or may not make. Because it's a, again, film noir is about people. It's about the human condition. A lot of times the the dark side of the human condition. And I think that's just something that people naturally identify with. 
I just don't think there's anything, there's no substitute to a good, compelling story. Uh, shown in shown in shown in a darkened theater. And one of the things about your programming is that you show some films that basically we don't have access to any other way than seeing it in a theater. So talk about programming choices like that. Well, one of the things I always tried to do is to maintain some of the fidelity to uh, what art did. And art, one of the, one of his books was Death on the Cheap, the Lost. B world of film noir and art would show like a movie on VHS that someone had in a shoebox in their garage. So I always try to keep that and put at least one in. And uh, Saturday at 10 a.m., I'm showing a movie called The Cruel Tower from 1956. So now I'm going to have a DCP of a film that's not on streaming, not on DVD, not on Blu-ray. Uh, another one that we're showing on Sunday morning is uh, Playgirl, which has been vaulted for decades. And in 2020, uh, we were able to show it at the Egyptian Theater and Universal actually made a DCP uh, uh, for me. And and this is great. And, and uh, this is Shelley Winters, Unbound. Don't you make with that cold truth, baby. Not when my temperature is 8,000 above. And then the other thing is, is my uh, as a charter director and treasurer of the Film Noir Foundation, we have restored many films and we have a very close relationship with the UCLA Film and Television Archive. And the Film Noir Foundation started when around Eddie Muller's kitchen table in Alameda because we couldn't get the films that we wanted to show at the Noir City Festival. And so then the foundation kind of emanated from that. So. At 4 p.m. on Saturday, I'm showing a, a 35 millimeter print of a film, High Wall, 1947, with Robert Taylor. But this is one of the films that we actually funded the print for, and we have those at UCLA, so I have access to those as well. And since I'm from San Diego and Victoria Mature lives here, her father was Victor Mature, I just wanted to ask you about the film you're showing. Actually, you're showing two films with him, but she's introducing one of them. So Victoria, she's been there. I had her there for Kiss of Death, and she, she sang a little song. And so we're going to come up with something. Uh, Victoria is about her dad. And we're going to introduce The Long Haul Sunday at 1 o'clock together. Livable. Livable, anyone? Yeah. A load of timber for Liverpool. Any offers? I'm right here. I'm going to Liverpool. Name? Kenny. Hey, just a minute. Look, I've been waiting over here. What's the idea? Sorry, Sean. This is uh, Victor Mature as an American GI married to a British war bride, and he becomes a lorry driver. And then, of course, gets caught up when the whole uh, trucking industry is, is corrupt. And then Diana Doors emerges uh, with the blown dried hair and so on and so forth. And she does her best to screw up Victor's marriage and so forth. And there's a phenomenal ending that uh, for those of your viewers who have seen the movie Sorcerer will recall. So uh, Victoria and I are going to do that together. And I, I think it's going to be a blast. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about the Arthur Lyons Noir Festival in Palm Springs. Thank you, Beth. I appreciate it. That was Beth Agamondo speaking with Alan K. Rohde. The Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival runs this Thursday through Sunday at the Camelot Theatre in Palm Springs. 
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.